Hello, and welcome to this episode of Social Impact Now, a podcast for social change makers. The Social Impact Now podcast lifts up the work of social change makers like you who are powering a positive impact and equity in our communities. I'm your host, Elaine Rasmussen, and together we're going to drive social impact now. Let's get started. In this episode of Social Impact Now, we'll be talking to Topher Wilkin, founder of Opportunity Collaboration. Topher has been convening and connecting people for the purposes of social change for over a decade, starting with co-founding the Highland City Club, a membership community of 300 changemakers in Boulder, Colorado, to managing Dutton Hot Springs, one of North America's top all-inclusive resorts and retreat centers, to leading Opportunity Collaboration, a global network of 1,200 nonprofit leaders, for-profit social entrepreneurs, grant makers, impact investors, corporates, and academics building sustainable solutions to poverty, and finally with the creation of conveners.org, a group of 150 conveners and accelerators in the impact space. Topher's purpose is to convene and connect nonprofit leaders, for-profit social entrepreneurs, grant makers, impact investors, and all other agents of positive change, thereby building the ecosystem for social sector and creating greater opportunities for international social and economic justice. Thanks again for, we have Topher Wilkin, CEO of Opportunity Collaboration with us today, and I'm so excited to have you on board. Welcome to our show, Social Impact Now. Thanks, Elaine. Happy to be here. Let's start off with Opportunity Collaboration Convening, and maybe we'll work backwards. Tell me, what is it, where is it, and who comes? Yeah. So Opportunity Collaboration is an annual unconference, as we call it, for uh, leaders all over the globe building solutions to poverty. Um, We convene once a year in Mexico, every October, uh, and for about five days. We take over a club med on the beach, <laughs> which is pretty unique. That's um, awful. <laughs> yeah, it's terrible. <laughs> uh, it's a really boring conference, right, Elaine? It's very traditional. There's all these PowerPoints and plenaries and keynotes and everyone's in their bit. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, it's the opposite of all that. So in essence, um, you know, we're bringing together these leaders in such a way that it's really about creating a foundation of trust and empathy and mutual respect. Uh, across the 400 or so people that we that we convene, um, and it's a whole diverse, eclectic crew of people. So we've got foundation leaders and individual philanthropists, grant makers, sort of rising class of impact investors, both in terms of uh, wealth advisory or asset management firms institutionally, and then also independent uh, angel investors, et cetera. We've got the whole gamut of on-the-ground nonprofit leaders, for-profit social entrepreneurs looking at a vast array of programmatic areas, so human rights and water and agriculture and housing and energy and education and health and you name it corporates, media folks, academic people. It's a whole broad swath of actors and stakeholders in the world of social impact. And we bring them together, and like I said, so that it's really about this strong human connection, first and foremost. Uh, And then once they've had a chance to create that relationship, then our theory is they can be all the more effective creating social impact at creating the partnerships and collaborations that we all seek in our respective work. Um, so that's opportunity collaboration in a nutshell. And uh, because we've been doing it for about eight years now, I would also add that via the annual event in this unconference structure, uh, we've become almost like this ongoing network or community that is very active throughout the course of the year. Uh, so we have a lot of regional receptions and reunions between the major events in Mexico every October and then we're just constantly linking people together uh, with phone calls and email intros and really trying to sort of deepen that web of connectivity for these leaders building solutions to poverty. 
That is incredible. And what I noticed and what we've talked about and the thing that just really turned me on to what you were doing is that you have a purposeful and mindful and intentionality around the diversity and inclusion at the convening. Why is that and how do you do that? Yeah, well, the why, I would say there's several reasons behind it. One is, and probably the most important, is that, you know, as we're talking about solutions to poverty, you know, we recognize full well that in most uh, sort of international global summits or conferences, um, it's typically a very specific demographic of people talking about all these solutions to folks who aren't necessarily in the room. So in our theory, we decided very early on that it was absolutely essential to have people who are on the ground from the developing economies and countries offering their perspective, having a voice, being a piece of the puzzle, um, really contributing to the conversation because obviously these are the folks who know uh, exactly what's happening and therefore what the best solutions would be. For otherwise, we can get into other areas there, Elaine, but that's really the core driver of it. And then in terms of how, Opportunity Collaboration has a unique business model when it comes to conferences. Um, so we don't have any sponsors or corporate underwriting or anything like that. There's no trade show environment that we you know, can charge for. Instead, we rely on the registration fees to be sort of the main economic engine for the business. And in that vein, we're able to offer about 60 fellowship slots every year because the other majority of folks who are there are able and willing to pour the regular registration fees. So via those fellowships, with a heavy emphasis on folks uh, the developing economies in non-OECD countries were able to uh, provide those folks essentially a free registration to come to the Opportunity Collaboration and fully contribute as delegates. And how many people come to the conference? Yeah, it's about 400 on average. We had just over 400 this year, just under 400 last year. It's grown over the years, but I think 400 is sort of the sweet spot in terms of what we're trying to create. That is a good group of folks, particularly if you're looking at a global representation. So that's amazing. Yeah. So how did you get started in doing this? Mm -hmm. Well, Admittedly, we have a founder. I'm not that person. <laughs> um, there's a gentleman named Jonathan Lewis, uh, who was the founder of the Opportunity Collaboration. He brought the first thing together in 2009. He had a background in economic development, social impact prior to forming Opportunity Collaboration. So he was also the founder of what was called uh, Microcredit Enterprises, now called NCE Social Finance, which was essentially one of the first micro lending, uh, micro finance institutions that was based in the United States, but primarily lending to people all over the global south. Um, he had uh, sort of a strong track record in riding that wave of interest in microfinance. He traveled all over the planet, met other uh, leaders in the space, other practitioners. Uh, in other words, he had an incredible network to draw from in creating a first opportunity vibration. And the other interesting piece of it was that he had attended a lot of very traditional conferences out there. And what I mean by traditional is, you know, the, the standard plenaries and keynotes and PowerPoint presentations and that what I call the sage on the stage model of bringing people together. And, and it was through his experience at these uh, standard traditional conferences that I realized there must be a better way to bring people together. Uh, there must be a more productive format for convening um, that he could create to leverage his incredible network. And because at the end of the day, it was the 15-minute coffee break at a lot of these conferences where he was getting much out of it because that's when he actually got to talk to people. Mm -hmm. um, so the premise of OC at its very uh, simplest is take that 15-minute coffee break and make that the entire conference. 
<laughs> that is um, that is so true. And and I know as somebody who's had to manage and produce conferences, that was always something that it's a difficult thing to do, particularly when you're working with like you, 400 people. But it is so meaningful if you're able to get it done right, and it, people walk away with such more powerful experiences and and relationships. So I feel like right now in the current climate, so we're in a, a post-presidential election kind of uh, rampage, and uh, we have our new president, Donald J. Trump. And I, I think that white guys are kind of getting a bad rap and made to feel bad. <laughs> and, and, and there's a lot of you guys out there doing some really good work. And so mm. as a white guy, though, what do white people say to you that they wouldn't necessarily say in mixed company? And how do you mm. react to that either internally or externally? Do you ever find yourself yeah. in that situation? Oh, my gosh. Well, you know, I'm, I'm lucky, Elaine, in that, you know, the folks I've surrounded myself with uh, via Opportunity Collaboration and other current efforts and, and you know, what, uh, what I've done in the past, you know, I'd like to, <laughs> I'd like to think that uh, these people, uh, what, no matter what color their skin is, are not necessarily saying things uh, in conversation with me that they wouldn't say elsewhere. Now, you know, that said, uh, yeah, I mean, I've had a few conversations in the last 10 days where, you know, fellow white guys have said things that, you know, just to me illuminate the fact that uh, they don't have necessarily a global perspective, right? Um, and I think via my, via my work with Opportunity Collaboration, which is this, you know, network spanning the globe, you know, yeah, every everyone from uh, India to uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, Southeast Asia, and Central and South America, and Europe, and you know, I'm just getting so many different global perspectives. And yet, you know, a few of these conversations that happened last week or so would just connote that people people need to wake up to the fact that there are so many different ways of existing on this planet. Um, and I and I have to I have to believe that last week election was a wake-up call in a very real way. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know the veil. The veil has been lifted, and we have started to see very, in a very sort of glaringly clear way, that there are major divides. That people do live in very disparate ways, even here in the United States. So I think what what's most important to draw from uh, last week is is the potential to build bridges to really form relationships where those relationships haven't existed before and really reach out to folks who aren't like us, uh, who aren't like whoever you may be and start that conversation and, and do so in a very trusting way, not in a combative way with the intent of listening, with the intent of empathy, with the intent of respect and understanding. So I think this idea of Without naming any names, can you give a specific example? Because I think sometimes people don't always know that that's how they're approaching it. And they think that they're Mm -hmm. actually having a, they may be having a global perspective or having an empathetic perspective. So without naming names, if you could provide an example, and I I think that that could be powerful. Well, it's interesting. I mean, as I'm I'm sort of thinking in uh, in my conversations recently, you know, I think the the conversations that have stood out the most, and it's a bit ironic, are the folks who think of themselves as most progressive, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so conversations around like, I'm so shocked and dismayed at what happened last week. You know, I can't believe it. How could this be? How could it, how could this reality exist where there are so many people that would support somebody like Donald Trump? Mm -hmm. Um, Those types of comments. And, and while admittedly, I felt the same way Wednesday morning last week, I was shocked. I was dismayed. I was confused. 
in the last week or so, uh, what I've really settled on myself uh, is that it was the voice of the poor who really mm-hmm. spoke out last week, uh, albeit a certain demographic, a certain skin tone, but it was the voice of those who are disenfranchised, who are fed up, who have been downtrodden by modern economic systems and principles. And yeah, and so even for the folks who consider themselves most progressive, to not be aware that that was a reality, that that was something that existed, not only here in the United States, but elsewhere, and that could speak so loudly, we were in a house of mirrors. We were confined to our own uh, media outlets, our own internal conversations, and we had our blinders on. Exactly. And I will tell you, and Van Jones went on Twitter and was saying to something to the effect of poor minorities didn't vote for Trump. And mm-hmm. I had to reply back because I was an election judge. <laughs> and yeah. mm-hmm. I saw there were people who, and I don't know what he's categorizing as poor, but I'm categorizing anybody making under thirty, forty thousand dollars because that's yeah. really, yeah. even though we have the poverty line, that's really kind of still barely making it. And these are people uh-huh. who are working class people. The one the thing that shocked me the most was there were a number of Asian people who voted for Trump. And I think mm-hmm. that that's another mm-hmm. mis conversation that's not really happening about mm. how Asian people are feeling and, and the, mm. the American promise that they're looking for. I agree with you 100% that the poor everywhere, they've over the number of administrations, whether it's Obama, whether it's Bush, have been sold this bill of goods that we can get them back to where we were. And the fact is that's never going to happen. And no one's really had an honest, thoughtful conversation about that's never going to happen. And here's what we need to do go forward. It's like, go, we're going forward. You need to come along and that's it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, on my side, on my side, Elaine, you know, opportunity collaboration its current incarnation is about solutions to global poverty. You know, one of the things I've been sitting with in the last week or so is how could we begin to curate something like an opportunity collaboration specifically for U.S. domestic social impact, economic development, social justice work, and use that as a platform through which we begin to have conversations that include the voices of the disenfranchised, the marginalized communities, not the untapped voices in this country. Because I think it's about the conversation. It's about that relationship building at the end of the day. You hang with a pretty progressive crowd, but what do you think or what do you hear are the biggest challenges in creating diversity, equity, inclusion? What are you seeing? Are mm. people hang-ups, the inertia? What What's stopping them? What are they saying? What are their concerns? Why, yeah. if, the, if they're saying that it's difficult, what what are you hearing is difficult for them? Yeah, I think there's a harsh reality at some level where, you know, the, the folks who call themselves progressives and agents of social change have the luxury to do that, have the privilege to do that. In other words, they don't, they can take a cut in salary to work for a nonprofit, for example. They have a safety net, social safety net that they can always fall back on just that they don't have to go after making as much money as they possibly can to feed their family every day. There's a simple, harsh reality in that it's the folks who look like me who can you can choose to do this work and therefore have the strongest voice. So on the flip side of that, obviously, you know, if you're working three jobs, three full-time jobs to feed your family, how do you possibly have time to 
attend something like Opportunity Collaboration for a week in Mexico. There's a very simple, albeit harsh, reality there. And I think beyond that, it's sort of cliche, but it's worth emphasizing this notion of sort of the great white hope and that and that we, we as Caucasians in the United States have everything so good and so easy and, you know, obviously I'm talking about the upper middle class, upper class here, and we must therefore know how to be helpful. We must therefore have the ideas and the solutions because we've been so successful. And therefore, the folks who are living in poverty, the side of our argument is that they don't necessarily have the solutions because otherwise they wouldn't be living in poverty. But that's completely the opposite of, I think, what we should be pursuing in terms of equity and inclusion and, and diversity. I think, um, you know, especially in an environment like Opportunity Collaboration where uh, we've really leveled the playing field it's oftentimes the voices of the most disenfranchised and marginalized that are the most profound and that we need to swallow a humble pill and sit down and listen at the end of the day. Exactly. You learn more by listening than by talking, right? That's why God gave you or the creator gave you two ears and one mouth. <laughs> <laughs> well said. Well said. Do you have any post-election observations or concerns as it relates to collaboration, social change, and building more mm. equitable communities? Mm. Well, like I said before, I'm, I think we've, we've really been exposed to this divide here in the United States in the last week or so. We've really come to terms with the fact that there's gross inequity, that there are people who are really upset, really pissed off. And, you know, at some level, a natural reaction to that is to further embed, further encamp, um, you know, yeah, further entrench. And yet that's the opposite of what's needed. So, you know, on, on on a certain level, I do have a bit of anxiety around where, where we'll start to go as a nation. You know, will we, will we continue that inequity? Will we continue that entrenchment or will we see, you know, a new path forward as a result of this uh, shock? and actually start to converse, to commune, to come together. And that's my hope. I feel like this is an opportunity for communities of color in particular to understand and realize that the answers are not going to, and the solutions are not going to come from the top. I think that's Mm -hmm. understood in some pockets of our population, particularly here in the United States. I know that that's a real growing movement with indigenous communities globally, but in the United States, I think we have it a little bit easy because we have cable, we have cell phones. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. we get a little, we get a little anesthetized to that. We have so much power. This, the very makeup of how this country operates we have so much power and that power was demonstrated last week but to even take that even we have so much more power that we don't even exercise and uh, i'm hoping that this is a a shock wave for communities to look from within as opposed to outside and that that really be a motivating catalyst to how are we going to get together because there's going to be stuff that's going on that we can't control but we can control what's going on in this four block radius so how, what are we going to do and how are we going to do that? And yeah. act, you know, that whole concept of working locally and acting globally. Mm, yeah, I love that, Elaine. You know, it's, it's a funny dichotomy, right? Because on the one hand, we chose a candidate who's an outsider, who's not top down, supposedly, in terms of sort of the traditional way that changes happen in this country. And mm-hmm. to me, in, in a way that that juxtaposes to what you just said, which is, and yet the power that we have, the change is really going to come from within. It's not coming from outside us. 
or outside the system. It's coming from within the system because at the end of the day, we are we are the people who make this shit up. <laughs> These mm-hmm. systems exist mm-hmm. because we have been complicit or proactive in building them. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, it's a, it's a funny dichotomy there. We, you know, at the same time that we chose this outsider or that some of us chose this outsider, it's within us to create that change. Exactly. So this leads me to my next question. We're both in some of the same spaces as it relates to impact investing uh, and as it relates to next market communities and marginalized communities. What are you seeing that's being overlooked in those conversations as it relates to mm-hmm. whether it's philanthropy or impact investing and making that connection to, because there is an opportunity for philanthropy and impact investing to do some really good work. What are some of the things that you're seeing are still missing from the conversation? conversation and, and how it's being talked about. I mean, the, the cynic in me says that, <laughs> uh, <laughs> let me start there. <laughs> uh, the cynic in me says that, you know, uh, the way that philanthropy has traditionally been done and, and the way that impact investing has quote unquote, traditionally been done, even though it's a relatively new field, um, is by supporting uh, the folks who look like myself who have the privilege that I have that may be operating in Kenya, for example, right? So we sort of, we bet on the people who look like us and who come from the same world as we do. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You know, the, the Harvard grad who's got the next sexy idea of solar lantern or something like that. However, I think there's, as we've discussed sort of the thread in today's conversation, there's enormous untapped potential in the communities that we're trying to serve. And if we can be better listeners, better relationship builders, better collaborators, and really partner with grassroots community-based actors um, and, and find the solutions there, as opposed to with folks who are coming into those communities as outsiders, I think we will we will really do the sector of service there and create far more long-term change. How would you recommend if somebody came up to you and say, Topher, all that's great, how do I be better in relationship building? I'm mm. a white woman. I'm a white man. I don't know anything. I don't know anybody. Where do I begin? Yeah. Well, <laughs> I could say come to the opportunity besides, collaboration. Besides, besides coming to the opportunity collaboration. <laughs> uh, that was a softball pitch there, Lane. Thank you so much. Um, well, no, it's interesting. I mean, part of the uh, part of what we do. So let me, you know, let me actually focus on what we do at OC because I think there is a model there that could be a lesson. There could be a lesson in there. Part of what we do at Opportunity Collaboration is uh, every morning over the course of the four full days we're together, our delegates are assigned to small groups, somewhere around 15 or 20 people. And you're with that same group of 15 and 20 people for two hours every day. Uh, So eight hours total over the course of the four full days. There's a facilitator or moderator for each of those groups. And it's in those groups that are incredibly diverse. And part of my job in, in terms of organizing convening opportunity collaboration to make sure that each of those groups is essentially as diverse as it possibly can be across a wide variety of indicators. The conversation is not about the work that we do in those groups. It is not, I'm the CEO of opportunity collaboration and we run this annual conference for social change, blah, 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 blah. It, my name is Topher and I'm, and this, you know, white boy born in Vermont, raised in New Hampshire and a relatively sort of upper middle class background. And, you know, this is my experience with poverty firsthand. I went to East Coast of Africa for four months and discovered that I was a global citizen and 
I could be a leader of change and I saw true happiness for the first time, even though I also saw true poverty for the first time, quote unquote, et cetera, et cetera. It's a chance for these leaders to really share their own personal story, um, their own path, their own experience with poverty, their own experience with power and privilege, their emotional triggers, their intellectual assumptions that they carry with them, their level of cultural competency, etc. So it's a, it's a chance in a very safe place to be very unsafe with each other, to really sort of break down the traditional barriers of, of relationship building where you start with your, your ego. You start with your title and your organization and what, you know, what are the sort of outward factors that people should be judging you by, and instead really have that deep personal, interpersonal conversation that's raw and vulnerable and authentic. Um, so I think, I think with that as a model, Elaine, to your question, it's about, it's about forming relationships based on vulnerability, based on recognition that we all have our own personal stories, our own personal paths, our own triumphs, our own tribulations, um, our own reasons for caring about the things that we care about and then therefore finding that true authentic human bond that true human relationship uh, because if we start with the other traditional mode it's building on a facade it's not building a true foundation right and one of the things that i generally will tell people is start from the things that you know everybody has a mother everybody has a father a lot of people have kids they have siblings so if you start from the conversation of tell me about your family everybody's got a family so from there that helps bring break down some of the one you get to learn something new that you probably didn't know (laughs) and Mm -hmm. that begins to open the door i think to what you're talking about of that moving to that authenticity moving from the surface to the more deeper level of, of connecting and where you can open your your heart to learn and see how you're the same, but see how you're different, but find appreciation in that. Okay. Yes. So, <laughs> so, so let me ask you this. What are some of the, I don't want to say outcomes, but what have been some of the wonderful things that have come out of opportunity collaboration as a role mm-hmm. of people coming together? What have been some things that have been sparked, catalyzed, put into yeah. play, innovative yeah. strategy? Yeah. So, you know, I, I have sort of two ways to answer that question. Like one is, one is the quantifiable outcomes as we say from OC, so, and we do everything we possibly can to measure what this annual event actually means, what transpires, what is happening as a result. So in that vein, you know, so-and-so social entrepreneur, so-and-so funder, and it's a match made in heaven, and that entrepreneur is, you know, resourced to the tune of X number of dollars, and then can therefore create 2X impact on their, in terms of the work they're doing. Yeah, we've seen organizations actually partner and merge together, which has been fascinating to witness. So individual nonprofits, for example, will close their separate legal entities and actually merge together as one larger entity as a way to reduce overhead and and decrease expenditures and increase impact as a result. So streamline, make it more efficient. People join boards, people get hired, funders coalesce and find ways to co-invest in people. There's a whole vast array of those types of quantifiable outcomes. And 
at the end of the day, it's why we exist. If, if we weren't seeing those types of results from bringing these folks together, we would close the doors and do something else. Mm-hmm. The, the other bucket there is quality. In other words, much softer, much more difficult to measure, much less sort of hard, concrete data. And what I mean, for example, is we hear time and time again that folks coming into the opportunity collaboration have this quote-unquote transformative experience. You know, they, they come and they they realize that they're no longer alone, that they have a new family that they can lean on. They reconfigure their leadership style as a result of being part of this event. And they form lifelong friendship. They re-energize themselves to be leaders of social change. It's difficult work. It's hard. And yet, mm-hmm. being in a context like this, you can lend people to sort of avoid that burnout potentially and really uh, keep, keep charging ahead. We've seen a couple marriages <laughs> as a result oh, of bringing Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> I, I suppose that could be quantifiable as well as qualitative. But, yeah, you know, it's, Absolutely. it's a space where... It's a space where people um, have a very productive experience, both personally and professionally, I would say. If there were one or two innovative strategies that came out of this last opportunity collaboration event, Mm -hmm. can you talk a little bit about like what were maybe one or two just, oh my gosh, this was so amazing and so innovative and I can't wait to kind of see how this makes it splash on the world. What would those one or two things that you saw from this last convening, what were they? Yeah, great. Um, yeah, this is this is sort of a, a personal highlight for me. I happen to sit on the board of this organization, so there's a bit of bias here. Um, but mm-hmm. we had uh, we had a group of musicians attend the Opportunity Collaboration this year, and we haven't done this before. This is a brand new endeavor for us. And these musicians came from all over the globe, eight different countries, from uh, with eight different musicians. And prior to Opportunity Collaboration, they had gone through a brand new program called Giant Deaf and the Music Action Lab. So for about six weeks, uh, these musicians were together. They were creating music together, on the one hand, coming together as an ensemble, and on the other hand, talking about how they could leverage music for social change. And Opportunity Collaboration was the capstone activity for that program. In other words, they went through this program for six weeks, and then they came to Opportunity Collaboration both as musicians, and they performed and they entertained, but also as delegates, also as people who in their own right, had you know, various solutions to social impact and to poverty. So the innovative strategy, if you will, uh, that I, I'd like to point to is, you know, we talk about social change uh, traditionally in the sense of, you know, I've got a nonprofit that serves this community of people uh, by providing access to quality health care or, you know, access to high quality education or we have this cool water cleansing technology and, uh, you know, suddenly this community has safe water where they didn't before. But in this case, it was how do you leverage the power of music? How do you use music as a force multiplier for telling the story of social change and social impact uh, in such a way that it lifts up the spirit and at the same time it lifts people out of poverty? Well, the, the saying goes, you know, music is the universal language, right? Mm, so you don't yeah, have to speak yeah. the same language. You don't have to have the same num- numerical music is that thing that we all understand, no matter where you yeah. are, no matter what you do. And, and it's part of our indigeneity, woven into yeah. who we are. So it makes sense that that would be the driver. I just saw yesterday on, I think it was on the news, there was a gentleman, police officer in Oklahoma, 
Oklahoma who borrowed from um, one of the late night TV shows, Carrie Car Karaoke, and he's mm. doing cop car karaoke, and it's his way of community outreach. So he'll have kids in the car, in the cop car with him, and they'll be lip syncing to current tune. And so mm. that one thing that just brings people together, and the kids can now see a police officer in a very different light than in a law enforcement, mm. and that, that this wow. is an, an, a human being who's part of the community, which is so great, coming off of the heels of, in my home state, Minnesota, where the police officer has just been charged for the murder of Philando Castile. So to have this gentleman in Oklahoma Mm. working in such a different light, it was just so wonderful. So music is that thing that just can carry us all. We just need to play more music, play it all the time, (laughs) everywhere. (laughs) That's so true. I just I just saw it was Neil Young was at Standing Rock celebrating his 71st birthday there. Oh, and, that's so uh, awesome. I love hearing something like that. Another good example. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Example. Well, I want to take, I want to give you this last opportunity as we wind down this episode. Is there maybe a piece of advice or something, one final thought that you'd like to share with our listeners? Mm, thanks, Helen. Um, yeah, I guess, you know, I guess the, the strongest message um, that I'd like to convey, and it's certainly been a thread in, in our conversation today, is reach out to the other. Go beyond your normal circle of friends. Find folks to connect to who think differently than you do. Build those bridges. Create those authentic relationships. And as a result of doing that, I have to think that so much more good will come out of those conversations than if we just stayed in our own silence. Absolutely, 100%. You get no argument for me. (laughs) Well, well, thank you again. We've had Topher Wilkins, CEO of Opportunity Collaboration. Look him up on Twitter at O-P-P-C-O-L-L and like their Facebook page, Opportunity Collaboration. Once again, Topher, thank you so much for being our guest. We really appreciate it and we look forward to the next time having you. Great. Thanks, Elaine. It's a pleasure. You can head over to iTunes now and give us a five-star rating and listen to the next episode. You've been listening to Elaine Rasmussen on Social Impact Now, a podcast for social change makers.